Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, whether this is your first time or whether you've been listening since the beginning. This podcast is an opportunity for us to talk about the best articles and podcast episodes on race, education, and culture. This week on the show, I'm very excited to have Brittany Flynn. Brittany is a learning specialist, a lead learning specialist in Hayward, California, in the Bay Area. And she's going to be talking about what it means to be a learning specialist as well as she's going to be focusing in on an article that we had a couple weeks ago on preschool. Before we get to that interview, though, I'm very excited to let you know that we are now getting people to call into the show. As I said last week, you can give me a call at 415-886-7475 with any comments, questions, any feedback that you have about the show. And I'm very excited to say that there wasn't just one, but two people who um, called in. The first one uh, came from Heidi, and here is her voicemail. Hello, this is number one fan of the highlighter podcast and mark you're just rocking it i i've been sort of sick and busy with stuff and i just listened to four in a row and they look fantastic each one fantastic like just the questions you're asking i i mean i list, i honestly could have listened for like an hour i don't know if that can change on the app that you have or the recording process or anything but just amazing um just really good stuff very interesting and um, I really like the one with Ann Niffler specifically I never really knew her that well at leadership because I think there was only an overlap of a year but just the I don't know the the conversation you guys are having specifically about white teachers and um you know what the biases that we bring and the racism that we perpetuated and and you know and small the microaggression with just awesome just really interesting stuff and um I'm just really excited for you and just amazed and it's just very inspiring so keep up the good work all right bye thanks Heidi for the kind words you were the first guest on the podcast so it feels appropriate that you're the first call-in I totally agree with you I appreciated talking to Anne also about microaggressions and how they play out in the classroom and white teachers uh, like us we need to continue to do more um, in order to teach better so thank you for that the second call-in uh, this week comes from Kira. Here's Kira. Hey, Mark. This is Kira. I um, love the podcast. I just listened to the um, episode with Alvin while I was um, running on the treadmill, and I think it's fascinating, and it gave me some really great ideas for an activity that I want to develop to um, support teachers. And I just think that the podcast is, is, is wonderful. I think that the highlighter is wonderful and I think that the highlighter podcast is wonderful and that you have really great, um, uh, people on. You host great guests and, uh, and they always have interesting things to say. Thanks, Kira. That was really great. And I agree with you. Um, listening and interviewing 
Alvin Chang from Vox was really wonderful. A lot of highlighter readers are really appreciative of his work, this idea of combining data along with words and cartoons and charts and graphs. And so maybe I'll have even more of his stuff in the highlighter coming up. I want to thank you, Kira, as well as Heidi for calling in. And I want to uh, encourage everybody to call in at 415-886-7475 because it's just much, much better where we have engagement and we have a dialogue here at the Highlighter Podcast. All right, it is time now for the interview with our guest this week, Brittany Flynn, and I hope that you really enjoy it, and I will have a few comments over on the other side. Let's get right to it. Hi, Brittany. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Mark? Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. How are you feeling today? Um, I'm excited. That's great. Um, can you please introduce yourself for the Highlighter audience? Yes, of course. Um, my name is Brittany Flynn. I am currently the lead learning specialist at Impact Academy, a high school in Hayward, California. Um, so I teach special education and I'm primarily supporting 12th graders this year. That's great. Can you say a little bit more about what a learning specialist is and does? Of course. Um, so my Credentials in special education, so I'm a special education teacher. Envision has a little bit of a unique model with all of our students are fully included into their gen ed classes. So a lot of my job is pushing into their classrooms to co-teach or pulling out small groups. And it's a lot of collaborating with their teachers to figure out the best way to either modify or accommodate curriculum so that they can get access to all of the wonderful things their teachers are teaching. That's great. And so we are recording on Sunday night. So tomorrow you're going to go back to school. What, what's sort of like on your docket tomorrow morning? What's a typical morning for you? Um, so as a learning specialist, our schedules are not quite as regimented as a gen ed classroom teacher. Um, so on the docket for tomorrow morning, I have a couple of teacher meetings. So I do weekly meetings with teachers to figure out what the lesson plan is um, for the week and to plan my various co-teaching. Um, I also have an IEP meeting, which is annual meetings that we have to have with students and their families, as well as the various service providers or educators that work with them to kind of set new goals and talk about their services. So I'll be doing some planning for one of those meetings as well. Uh, why did you choose special education in the first place? was kind of a circuitous path, but ultimately it came from a really strong interest in research and research-based practices. I did a lot of work in behavioral therapy with students with autism. I get really excited about the fact that we can give these students access that are typically left out, so to speak. And I think that both the fact that the students I work with have various learning disabilities um, or differences, as well as the fact that Envision as a whole works with students that tend to be lower income and come from neighborhoods that already get overlooked a lot. These students are especially overlooked. And so giving them access to greater opportunities and to greater levels of learning um, was really fulfilling when I started doing it. And so essentially, that's why I keep doing it. Can you talk about one student who has really informed your work? Um, there's one particular student that I'm thinking of um, that just had lots of really negative experiences with school. And when he first came to our school was definitely 
just not interested in having any kind of relationship with any adult or with any kind of educator. Um, and you couldn't blame him for all of his mistrust because it was just due to a series of, of bad experiences and being moved around. He'd been to four different high schools in his freshman year. And so I think that over the course of a really long time, we were able to build trust with him and, and he was able to feel comfortable on, on campus. And now, I mean, he passed all of his classes last year. He's on track to graduate. And he had a specific moment where he came to my office when he thought he was going to get kicked out of his foster home again and said that he really wanted to stay at the school. And if he got kicked out, were we going to make him leave or transfer because he wanted to figure out a way to keep coming? Cause it was the first school that he had felt like cared about him or wanted him to succeed. And so that particular yeah, that- moment and other moments like it have definitely reminded me to stay. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, the work is hard, but it's it's something that I'm sure is very fulfilling. Um, out of all the things, I know that you do so many different parts of the job. What do you think is your favorite part? What's the most gratifying? I think my favorite is connecting with students. I think that I, I consider myself extremely lucky that as a learning specialist, I have a much smaller caseload. And so I get to know my students um, a little bit more personally. And that also means that I get to have a lot more conversations with them, whether, I mean, things like they got really upset and ended up either walking out of class or getting kicked out of class. And somehow they end up in my office and we, we talk about it and we debrief it and we make plans to have some kind of restoration or mediation. And I think that those conversations, especially the ones where we're able to, to work through some things and, and make some, some good plans or set some intentions feel really meaningful. Um, and I feel really lucky that I get to do that. I think more often than a classroom teacher, just because of the flexibility that my, my schedule offers me that I can, I can be there to, to check in with those kids when they need. Yeah. I find sometimes with uh, gen ed, it's like all about groups of students. Whereas with learning specialists, I feel equity is, um, looks different in some ways where you can really, um, pinpoint and work with students individually. Um, would you agree that you sort of see equity maybe in a different way than, than say classroom teachers? I think it's a little bit different because I think that it takes into consideration a lot more factors than sometimes get considered. I also think that, I mean, it was something that was told to me um, by one of my first program specialists when I started working with Envision, and it's something that's like on our student support website and stuff. But uh, I consider one of the most important aspects of my job being that I'm an advocate for my students. So I'm, I look at it as like, I'm that person during a family team, dis- our grade level team discussion that's that's there to kind of be like, well, let's not overlook these students or let, let's reframe some of the ways we're talking about these students or, or things like that um, to make sure that we're continuing to think about things from an equity lens and also from just serving that all of our students deserve to have access to the curriculum. How do you have time even to read? Like you're a big reader, you're a subscriber to the highlighter. Thank you. Um, how do you find time to read and what do you like to read usually? Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of listening to podcasts, um, to make up for when I don't feel like I'm reading as much because podcasts, I do love listening to podcasts while I'm like washing dishes or cooking dinner podcasts kind of supplement the reading. And then in terms of reading, one of the things I love is I'm actually a member of a book club with a lot of other people that have been on the highlighter and subscribe to the highlighter. Um, and I find that that's really awesome because I like reading things that I can talk to other people about. I think that's one of my favorite parts of reading is finding really interesting things that I then want to immediately like debrief with people. So I felt like there were a couple years there where I wasn't reading as much as I used to and joining the book club definitely 
re-excited me because it was both a place where I could debrief and talk about things, but also a place where I could find recommendations for new books or even swap books and share things um, that other people have read. And so that has been one of my favorite things. Yeah, I totally agree. And your point about the book club, I'm part of a book club too. And and that's also maybe what the highlighter's about is that it's almost like a big article club, you know, that all these people are sort of hopefully reading some of these articles and able to connect. Um, even at like the uh, happy hour, which is coming up, I'm trying to plug that too, uh, <laughs> which is on the 8th. But yeah, the idea that I like this idea that people are all reading stuff and then can also maybe connect on what they're reading. So I'm totally happy that you're part of the highlighter. And I would love to ask you, which article have you chosen for today? Yes. Um, the article that I've chosen was from last week's issue about preschool and specifically preschool teachers. Yeah, this was a piece in the New York Times that was in 126, and the piece is by Janine Interlandi. And so many people have already told me that they appreciated the article. Why did you choose it? Um, I chose it for a number of reasons. I think one is that some of the issues that they bring up and challenges span K through 12 education as well. So I felt a lot of like this connects to my current work, but also because my um, first jobs in education were all in preschool classrooms. Um, when I was doing behavioral therapy with kids with autism, it was for San Francisco Unified School District with the preschool team. Yeah. So what did you notice when you were working with younger students? Like, how was the sort of preschool experience different, say, than where you work now in a high school? I think that the family and parent involvement is very different. And I wouldn't go as far to say that it's more or less, but more that it's just different because the kids aren't going to be as as vocal or self-advocating for, the, for themselves, obviously, because they're so much younger. So um, there's a lot more communication with parents. And um, what sort of resonated with you the most while you read the article? I think that what was resonating with me the most was this tension that the article, I think, was trying to grapple with of quality versus access. And then they were talking about funding and wanting to give as many students access as possible, but then also the question of investing in high, higher quality. And then also tied with that, the idea of what is higher quality and do the teachers need to have more education to be, quote unquote, more highly qualified? And what does that mean in terms of the various people that they're pushing out? I thought it was really interesting, the point that the article made in terms of preschool teachers having more diverse backgrounds than elementary school teachers um, and that being more likely to come from the neighborhoods that some of the students they're serving are from. And that part of that probably has to do with uh, less credentialing minimums and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the thing that hit me first was just if if we think that teachers and educators are paid very little, even at the secondary level, mm -hmm. it was just so stark how little that preschool teachers were making. And my first thought was, how is this even possible? Especially when I think about my work in preschool classrooms, those teachers weren't working less hard than the teachers that I work with now or um, do. I mean, it's in, in some instances, you can even say that it can sometimes be more work because a three-year-old can't be given as much independent room as a teenager can, even in terms of like giving them breaks or things like that. There's a lot more like hands-on supervision that has to happen because even their basic daily needs need help being met. And so it's just very clear that those teachers aren't doing less of a job. But why do you think that our society who said, you know, like we say that we care about kids, why have we not 
why do we allow this to happen? I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I felt like it resonated with even my current work, because I think that my answer is going to span the same assumptions that are made about K-12 educators. But I think that people don't necessarily directly understand the amount of work that goes into it. And so it's easy for them to belittle it or label it babysitting or things like that, um, that don't, that according to society don't need to be valued or highly compensated. Um, I remember reading something, and of course, I can't remember where it was now, but I remember reading an interesting point that a lot of people feel like they understand the job of teachers more so than any other random job because everyone was in school at some point and was a student, and therefore, they feel like they understand what a teacher does. And it's a really false conception because, I mean, I know that before I became an educator and, and took classes on education, I did not know what a teacher did. Like when I think about my high school experience, I didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes, so to speak. But people have a false conception of understanding that they don't maybe have for finance jobs or things like that that they have no experience with. Yeah, I totally agree. I love how you also were, you're really thinking about this quality versus access issue. It's interesting. Like when I was looking at the article, um, I had no idea that so few of American um, kids have access. I made this assumption that I was higher, you know, with Head Start and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And this article just made it very clear that not only is the quality not great, but also the access isn't even there. And it just got me thinking that maybe if you're a parent who happens to have money and resources, you'll do the best job that you can with your kids, perhaps in a private preschool, and not necessarily even think about the rest of everybody else's kids, you know, the, the rest of the family's access. Do you think that that's sort of at play in this article? I think it definitely is. I think it, it starts to bring up the, the spread of cities including preschool as part of their K through 12 plan so that it actually starts at age three. I think San Francisco started to do, to do this. And I mean, those were some of the classrooms I was working in when I started um, that are just part of their public education system. And I think that we need to see more of that and more, um, more cities and States just including preschool as part of public education. Um, because I do think that you're right that right now it ends up being the more, money that you have that you can put towards it, of course, you're going to pay for the best that you can get for your child. And then if you can't afford it, it ends up being, you know, whatever you can do to make ends meet. And that doesn't yeah. always end up meaning the best outcomes for the child. So for this issue of the quality versus access, there is more and more credentialing. And yet it doesn't necessarily seem that that is the answer. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I definitely don't have a clear answer because I think it's a really hard question. But one of the things in the article that struck me the most um, was the idea that some of these cities have put in place of apprentice programs and bringing training to the classroom um, to support teachers while they're working. And it reminds me of, of even some of the programs that exist in higher education as well, right? Like reach and various programs that'll come in and, and help a non-credential teacher become credentialed while still teaching. And I, I wonder if we can expand some of those or do that more, because I think that I think that there are a lot of benefits, both to allowing individuals that don't necessarily have the time to just take two years off from working and go to school to get all the credentialing they need, let alone the money to pay for those. But it also is interesting because I, I started teaching on an intern credential before I had finished my credential. And I found it really interesting to be able to ask questions of my professors that came from the classroom that day, right? Like I taught all day and then I went to a night class and I was actually able to debrief some of the challenges I was having. And I feel like I actually got more out of my professors because of that than if I had just been 
discussing hypotheticals with them. I wouldn't necessarily have known what questions to ask. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I know that some school districts as well as charters have residency programs, but I really don't know why they're not more popular. And if the answer is um, because they're too expensive, that's just not a good enough answer. I mean, even at the high school level, I think that there are totally a lot of great relationships between teachers and uh, student teachers, but sometimes it's just not enough practice. Um, whereas it seems like you had an opportunity to sort of learn while you were also doing the job. Yeah. And I mean, I think that I, I also think that those programs just, they have to come with a lot of support. I think part of the reason that I was successful starting on an intern credential is because I just had phenomenal support from in terms of coaching and like my program specialist, um, Eva Huffman, if she's listening, she was great. <laughs> um, so I just felt like I had tons of support. And so I had room to kind of fail and someone was there to, to catch me or help me work through it. So that is the one big piece is that is, is that that support has to be built in. But otherwise, I think that those, those programs can be really great. Yeah, I agree. Let's, let's make um, more connections with what you feel was in the article that can be applied, say, to secondary. And the reason is that the great majority of uh, highlighter listeners are, um, who are educators mm -hmm. are part of the secondary. What else did you notice in this article that you would like to sort of advocate, um, advocate for? One of the things I noticed in the article was relationship building and this, the, the teacher that they were following throughout the article, kind of talking about her intuitive ability to connect with her students, even without whatever official training might be mandated. Um, and I think that that relates a lot to, to secondary teaching as well. Cause I think that some of the, the teachers that I work with that are the most successful, or even I think some of the reason why I'm successful with the students I work with are because of that kind of that thing that can't necessarily be taught in a classroom that really just has to do with building relationships and creating a space where your students feel safe. Um, I talked a lot about younger students and these preschool students really needing to be able to feel safe in order to learn or connect with their their teacher. And it mentioned that high school students could maybe learn from someone they don't like. But I think with the population of students that that I've been working with for the last few years, they definitely learn better from the teachers that they don't maybe they don't necessarily like, but that they trust or um, feel like they can connect to in some way. And so I think that 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 idea spans all ages of teaching and is something that I would love to think more about how we support teachers in doing better. Yeah, I agree. And about about salary, for example, I mean, $10 an hour for a preschool teacher is just not not going to cut it. Yeah, no, my, quest my question to you is that just for years and years and years, teachers have been saying, can we just have a little bit more money? And my question for you is, if teachers did get significant raises, I don't know how much that would be. Do you think that, for example, teacher turnover would go down significantly? Or do you think that it wouldn't necessarily make a difference? I think it would definitely affect teacher turnover because so many of the people I know that have left the classroom have left it because they found other opportunities where they could be more stable. I mean, part of that's because we live in the Bay Area and it's just a really high cost of living also. But I think that it is really hard to commit to a career that is both really takes a lot of work and, and to be good at it takes a lot of dedication and doesn't feel like you're able to create a stable lifestyle. So I think that so many more people would be able to even just even when I just think of, of 
people being able to dedicate more time to learning how to be better teachers. It's hard to do that if you are struggling to make ends meet and you're potentially working different jobs over the summer or things like that. Um, it's just really hard to feel committed and fully in it if you don't feel stable financially. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really tough because I think that there can be things like uh, more support for teachers, but at, at some point, it does have to do, especially in the Bay Area, with whether it's possible to um, to pay the rent and, and those kinds of things. It's also really hard because in teaching, it feels like if you're a good teacher, then you're supposed to leave the classroom. That's the only way to make significantly more money, at least. Um, and sometimes the only way to feel like you've been promoted in some way. So a lot of people that are good teachers end up leaving the classroom and becoming administrators or coaches or going into policy or different things. So there's not room, it feels like sometimes, to grow within the classroom. It feels like if you're growing, that means you're leaving. Yeah. And that, I mean, that came up in the article as well. It was just like, here was the job. This was going to be the job, I guess, forever. And there weren't necessarily opportunities to grow um, in the profession. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you as, um, a final question about being a learning specialist and how you feel like you can grow in this profession, especially given that the resources are limited. What have you done and what could you sort of offer to other folks who might be interested in being a learning specialist? What are the different opportunities that you have sort of been able to explore and that you would suggest to others? Um, yeah, I think that in terms of personal growth, what I've been really focused on, what I have been really focused on is, um, my ability to work with other adults because a big part of the learning specialist job is collaborating with Jenna teachers and, and ultimately my students, they're only successful if I'm able to figure out how to work with their general education teacher and, and co-create a plan for them that works. And so a lot of my time has been on various opportunities to think about um, collaborating with adults and things like um, Elena Aguilar's The Art of Coaching and, and other direct coaching that I've gotten on my like facilitation skills or collaboration skills um, have felt really helpful um, and felt like they contributed to my growth as an educator and ultimately led to better outcomes for my students. Thank you. Brittany, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for being on the show and being on the highlighter. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Brittany, once again, for being on the show and for sharing your experiences and your expertise and your perspective on what it means to be a learning specialist, as well as the challenges that preschool faces. It was wonderful to hear your viewpoint, so thank you. And to all of you, all the wonderful listeners out there, I want to thank you again for listening to this podcast. If you have any comments, you can again call me at 415-886-7475. Like other podcasts, I'm going to encourage you to go over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast, especially if you like it. And one last thing, we are having 
in person highlighter happy hour number four at room 389 in Oakland on Thursday, February 8th, starting at 530. You'll find out more information about how to get your tickets, free tickets, um, in this Thursday's newsletter. So be looking for it at 9, 10 a.m. this Thursday, and you'll get all of the details. Have a wonderful week, everybody.